And that's great. Like, again, thank you for participating. And data was one of the areas that, um, like, across the board, um, nonprofits that identified that they were um, in more training in this area. So that's why we started holding these workshops. So, and from Barb's expertise to um, knowing the nonprofits really. Uh, so we'll um, have you today. And um, so the agenda, um, we'll go through a series recap, and then that'll be probably about 30 minutes. And then the rest of the time, uh, we'll be working with data management plan components. And Megan will be leading that part. So there'll be um, uh, some exercise where she reviews the components of the data management plan and then um, you guys will work in your groups and um, complete through the questions and answers. Then we'll have time for QA, but really throughout the presentation, you should. I mean, I gave you homework and now I'm saying you can raise your hand, <laughs> uh, but you could raise your hand to ask questions and interact and everything throughout. Um, and then we'll just have closing and next steps. Um, this time we all have you in person. So there is a session evaluation that will pass out. So I don't have to bug you on email afterwards to fill out the session evaluation. Um, and then the next steps will be you'll just get the future date for the BYOD workshop and anyone can attend, even if they don't send in data, we're just waiting on um, maybe one more organization to send in the data. Um, throughout the series, we have talked about what data is needed for your grant seeking and management. Um, yes. And uh, so, on slide five, if you kind of look at that image there, we've talked about national data, local data, uh, your needs assessment, and um, evidence based practices and evaluation data. And that kinds of with your programs and services at the center. And that rolls up into all of the data that funders need. So we've reviewed that through the whole series. Um, and first in the data 101 workshop, um, Barb had uh, went over a need statement example and what kind of data was used in that need statement. So I think I'll just turn it over to her. Um, starting on slide seven. Um, slide six has that um, that we have been referring to the whole time, where there's community data that describes your community uh, program evaluation data that says if your program is effective and uh, evidence-based research. So I'll just turn it over to Barb for uh, slide so seven. Sure, just a quick review on uh, the need statement. So on our April 11th, uh, we hosted the Data 101 workshop where we reviewed the data components um, that um, are needed for a strong needs assessment. Um, and we used uh, as an example uh, a grant that we wrote uh, on behalf of Long County Public Schools uh, for their Virginia Juvenile Justice uh, Grant Program. Uh, but just to review uh, what a need statement is, um, in order to have a successful grant, uh, you need the funder to clearly understand the problem you're trying to attempt to solve. 
um, and you need to be able to back it up. Um, and that's with the data that you're trying to collect. Um, it's this fact that makes the need statement so important for your entire grant writing process. The need statement drives the entire proposal. It defines the problem, describes the implications of the problem, and identifies the gaps in your community. When you begin the process of writing your next grant, the need statement should be the place that you start and maybe the section you spend the most time digging into. Um, again, the important thing is always reading the notice of funding um, announcement um, and to customize your data and your need statement around what the funder is asking for. Um, so you're gonna describe the problem using data to highlight uh, the community barriers uh, your target population and research-based practices, what progress you've made on the project already and why your services are unique, um, unique to, to the funder. Um, the second thing you need to do um, in writing a need statement is really assessing your need. Formal, informal assessments, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, are your best tools to determine what, that, um, what your needs are. Um, with that, you can go to the slide eight. And here we have um, a neat statement example. Um, and we went covered this in our in the grants 101. But here in the in the first paragraph, we're talking about since 2012, we're giving a little bit of history. Um, it's background, it's a simple way of stating that since 2012. It demonstrates a 12 year experience in facilitating programs. So you have some historical data to start with. And then the next section um, as restorative practices interventions have been proven, um, we're talking about we're getting into our evidence base. So you got chocolate? I chocolate for everybody. <laughs> and sugar. Chocolate and sugar. Uh, can't say too much. So it's bars. Wow. 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 Well, as you're getting your sugar, keep going. See, we're all monitoring why that was Starburst. Yes. Pick up where there are something like. Share with your friends. I only mentioned that they have Starburst in the car. further into a description of what restorative practices interventions are, um, we introduce that evidence base. So we have evidence based that's referenced, it's cited, we start to bring that in. Um, and the third bullet, we're talking um, demographic information, which illustrates the population and shows the disproportionate impact um, that is occurring. So this here is your census data. So we're bringing in 
the historical, the um, evidence-based, um, and then more data to back it up. Um, for those of you who have brought a need statement, um, how does this align with your need statement? Does anybody like to share? All right, I will take you in the back. <laughs> I'm not really. <laughs> Please, <Why>? <laughs> <laughs> Anything funny for you guys. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> we'll just we'll just have the left. Our trees are learning about your needs state. I recently wrote. <laughs> Got it. Excellent. Um, so much really condense and hone in right off exactly, you know, what I needed to say. And actually, it even helped me be a little more succinct so that I wasn't like, um, it just, it just, everything just kind of came together. Better. And it started to flow. Mm -hmm. Once you got that heat statement, everything else kind of flowed. For you to really kind of explain more. Excellent. Others. So, uh, as far as the demographic data, I just have a question. How current is that data, or or should it be? Because I know you know sometimes it's really hard for, for me to find really current data. So it's you know a couple years back. So that's going to depend on the type of data you want to use. So for instance, um, the decennial census is going to have the most complete sets of data and that should the 2020 should have been released um, this month for all of the tables that they have. So if you're looking at something in like a neighborhood level with demographics, definitely the decennial census. Um, it's still going to be a couple years old, but that's the most accurate picture that you'll get. Um, if you're looking at uh, something that could be a little bit larger, the American Community Survey would be really good with some of the demographic information for your needs. Um, and we do have a training that we uh, supported during this series that we can share with the group. Uh, we had somebody from the census come and do the training on the American Community Survey. I always cite um, in a previous job, we had difficulty getting that most up to date or could have been five years, but I always cite it and, and put an explanation in there. And usually funders know that, but yeah. Anybody else? We can move to slide. Oh, we're still in there. Um, so diving in a little bit deeper, here we have the first paragraph. Um, we talk about more research um, that evidence-based, again, it's cited and it talks about the disproportionate impacts. So again, rolling in more um, evidence-based information um, in that first paragraph. And then um, in the last paragraph shows past success um, and why you want to expand. So we're talking about kind of the history of um, the successes of the past, um, and this is why we are seeking more funds to expand our program. Um, 
the results of your uh, the statement along with your data um, from collected from reliable sources are used uh, to document the need. Um, so use this information to answer um, one or more of the following. How did you determine the need existed? What exactly is the problem? And use data to collect um, or use data collected. Who does the problem affect? Um, are you helping clients or a subset of clients? What will happen if you don't fix the problem now? Will it cost more to fix it later? Will the problem continue to grow without an intervention? And what is the return on investment for fixing the problem? So with that, you can go to slide. Here we just broke down, um, kind of showing um, the a need statement in a little bit of a different way. And charts can be a powerful addition to your um, applications. But again, rely on your notice of funding. There's also application portals that don't like charts. Um, so really understand and know um, what the NOFO is asking for. Uh, many times applicants will say that they don't want charts. If you're able to use charts, they can be a powerful tool in the sense that it breaks up that narrative a little bit. Um, it kind of makes things pop out a little bit more. Um, but again, understand that no fold. Um, so here we're just looking at the problem or the need on the left side. Um, we're talking about the percent of the suspensions. Um, we're talking about the overuse of suspensions. And then on the on the left side, did I say left side? Then on the right side, we're talking about those methods, strategies, and activities. Um, those things that you're going to use to solve your problem or your need. So it's just a nice way to um, look at um, and kind of show your information in a little bit of a different way. Just a disclaimer that this is um, just an example. And, uh, just an example. Um, so we took, we used the, um, in the previous slide, we took, um, in the example, those were, that was an exact, uh, an example of the need statement that we did use in the actual application in this T-chart, uh, we made some assumptions. So these aren't what LCPS uh, put in their um, application or has committed to. So it's just using um, as an example. Um, and with that, I'll turn it to Tracy. Um, so Nathan mentioned this training, but on um, April 13th, uh, we held a training with um, Daisy Calvert McNeil, the U.S. Census Bureau Data Dissemination Specialist. And the Census Bureau has data dissemination specialists across the country, and she is um, the specialist for our region. So uh, you guys could go to her with any questions if you're having problems pulling tables or if there's a data set that you want to pull but aren't sure how to do it. Um, you could of course come to us and we'll try to help you, but she is like the go-to person at the census. Um, and she might come back and do some more trainings too. Um, and then thinking back to that funnel image that we have spoken about the whole time, um, the Census Bureau is the top of that funnel for national data. Um, 
And so using the census data along with your program statistics, like Barb has pointed out, and evidence-based research will make a more comprehensive case for your programs and services. Um, and uh, the uh, resource that we focused on the most during that training was the American Community Survey. And um, as Megan said, that the decennial census, it um, goes to every household and it has age, race, sex, uh, ethnicity, household uh, data. And then the ACS has um, goes a little bit deeper. It's a survey that with 3.5 uh, million people for the sample size, and it goes into social, demographic, economic, and housing characteristics a little more deeply. Um, and the census data, you could also uh, filter down further into uh, neighborhoods, but um, for the ACS, go down to the census block group. So it starts with national, state, county, census track, and census block group that's covered in ACS data. So to get there, you go to data.census.gov, and these are all in for PowerPoints. There's a huge reference section at the end, <clears throat> but you'll go to data.census.gov for the search, and then you'll start by selecting your geography. Then you'll choose which uh, population uh, subset that you would like to select. This one selects county, but you could also go down to census tract or census block group here. Uh, so you'll select your uh, population segment, then you'll go to state. And uh, in the search bar, you can start typing Miles County. And then you'll click search. Um, here in their directions, they say like DP, um, and then you'll pull up all the uh, tables that are demographic profiles. Um, I like when I'm searching, would just type in income or something like that, or economics or something like that, and it would still pull up a, a pretty good list of tables that have that. And then you can click on each table um, to review um, what is there. Trent Small from our mapping and GIS team reviewed the Loudoun County GeoHub. So thinking further about, we had the national data, and then in the next, uh, a subsequent training, we went through how Loudoun County contextualizes that data uh, on their website. So the GeoHub is the main portal um, for how we interpret that data. Um, so, and this link will be live when we send this out. We also went through a Flickr gallery with some static maps that you could use in your um, narratives and uh, something called Web Logis. And then we went through uh, that we will be making a nonprofit data toolkit that divides all of the resources by category. Uh, the purpose of the toolkit is to just house publicly available data for you to use in your grant writing. Um, just see where we are now. Hopefully, I can do that. I had some connection problems in your ability. But basically, we started just a huge 
list of um, different resources that you can um, and are starting to make it into a table. So that there will be live links per category of different resources that you can use divided by national, state, and local data and evidence-based research. Um, you can start categorizing everything uh, and putting links to everything. So I've already helped you guys too. And we are doing this in phases. Yeah. So it's a lot of information. We don't want to hold it all till the end. So you'll get bit by bit. But the first one is going to be what she just showed that table with the links. That's like quick facts kind of information. That you can just put. And then we'll get into more depth as we move along. So now we're here to help. Since <laughs> <laughs> the 20th of April, we have had a data collection best and confidentiality best practices. Um, they were just really great. Um, we talked about um, mapping our data collection methods. Um, to answer certain questions about what your community needs and pro program evaluation. So you determine what your community needs. How do you target your services? Who are you serving? Um, how is your program effective? And is my program making an impact? So um, that will inform uh, your organizational uh, tasks and services and then the methods for how to gather that information. So that's what this table um, is describing. I'll pass it back over to So, Tracy brought this this image up at the beginning of the presentation because really what we're thinking about is all of these sources of data help you to tell your story, right? And help you to inform your programs, your services, whether it be the evidence base that you're using, whether it be um, some of the local data that you access, your own data that um, you're using to help improve your programs. All of these fit together to create the best outcome or the best grant proposal that you have in describing your programs and your services. And funders will want all of it. Right. I mean, it's not something where you can pick and choose one piece or another. Really, what they're looking for is how you put it together and how you tell your story. Part of how you tell your story is how compliant you are with your own data management and how compliant you are and really clear about the ways that you handle your data and the ways that you analyze your data in meaningful ways to help support your story. Because if it's kind of disjointed, you're not telling a very good story. Right, you really want to make sure that it's intriguing, that it's really punchy, that it's explaining a lot of information, and sometimes a very short um, page limit, right, or character limit in some cases. <laughs> I've used the um, the example for one of our grants that we received. It was four hundred and seventy nine thousand dollars, something like that, or maybe two hundred seventy nine. It was a 400 word limit. That's it. That was it. 400 words. So really the way you craft the argument matters when you have very few words to do it. And that's what we want to convey here is at the end, we'll talk about whether you can sort of prioritize your time depending on uh, the way the NOPO is set up. So we'll talk about that at the end. 
But um, so here, it's just how do you manage all this, right? You're, you have data from all these sources, it gets overwhelming. And so it's really difficult to think about it, take a step back and think about your story. Okay, next slide. And so what we're actually gonna do is help to start putting some of the pieces together. And sorry, when I talk, I like to stand. So um, you'll see me walking on but um, so really what we want to do is walk through the components of a data management plan with you. And we want you to interact with the materials and not just listen to what we have to say. We want you to be purposeful thinking through the materials that we have. We'll also send the out to you so you have copies of them. But generally, um, this is going to be a working session for you from here on out. So what we want you to do is as we walk through the components, jot some stuff down on your handouts, all right? Be thinking about how you want to put something like this together. How many of you have written a data management plan before? I didn't call it that. What did you call it? This data? Okay. So what we're going to, so then I'm going to pick on Judy and Bonnie um, <laughs> for these, um, because part of this is, is really how it's not just a data management plan for a great proposal. Really what we want you to think about is how you put together these procedures and these protocols and these standardized sets of processes so that you can just pull them as needed, right? So that you're making your grant writing easier and being able to pull from your, your policies and procedures to dump into a, a proposal. Yeah, Carol, would you have? Well, we have an objectives and key results spreadsheet, mm -hmm. which is kind of data, you know. Yep. I mean, it's all the data that we want to collect quarterly. Perfect, great. So, and it, it's very helpful. Good, yeah, and that's a reminder, right? It's really that written set of components that you have to continually update or continually revisit because otherwise you could have mission creep you could have, you know, a lot of other issues where you're collecting data for collection's sake versus yeah. the actual purpose of the programming. And that's what it, it really is helpful because of that, because we've put, there are some objectives where over time, we're like, why are we, why are we even, you know, mm -hmm. like we're just not revisiting it. So like, is it really important? Exactly, exactly. And that's what we're going to talk about with the management plan. So this is the template that we've provided. Um, this is just uh, kind of an outline. This is what we're going to be going over for the rest of the time. It's this, this piece, along with some of the others, and you'll see how the spider web starts to build um, as you look at all your materials. How many of you brought your logic model and need statements? Okay. All right. So we also have blank logic models if you want to start jotting down some of what your outcomes and um, your activities are, some of your outputs, and we'll talk through that as well. So I'm going to, you know, we're going to strap in here in about a minute and a half. So if you need to take five minutes for a bio break, we can do that. Or if you're ready to just charge on in, we can do that. I'm looking for the group's consensus. All right, let's go for it. Okay, so here is what a data management plan actually is. Um, it is a written document um, or a set of policies and procedures that focus specifically on how you expect 
to either collect or acquire, and collection is the actual act of collecting data by your staff, or acquiring, which could be shared data from another organization. It could be census data, it could be school data. So whether you collect it yourself or acquire it, you need to have a plan for it, okay? And that plan really is how you are going to use, to access, to restrict access in some cases, um, how you'll store it, and then how you'll preserve and eventually destroy it. Because we do not need to keep data for 20 years. Um, I was just telling Tracy and Barb um, when we were going over this PowerPoint that I still have the raw data that I collected from my dissertation. And I completed it in 2009. Okay, I keep it for sentimental value. <laughs> it took a lot of work, but there's no reason to keep it. It is so out of date. There's absolutely no reason. So Tracy, on the other hand, <laughs> you want to tell your yeah. little? <laughs> so as I was like, I wanted to think about the Tuesday that I needed for today. I noticed that um, I had feedback surveys from our fall uh, in-person session, and I, since I had already entered it in the computer, I just like through it. <laughs> But it was a little <laughs> nerve-wracking to be like, okay, the source of this data is just yeah. going away now. And as long as you have it documented where the source is and have it appropriately labeled, that's fine. Because we don't really need to house paper, right? Um, but all of that should be in your plan, right? So really, this is something that you can build and then pull and then revise and then pull. Okay, next slide. So sometimes we get the question, okay, that's really hard to see on this screen. Um, we'll, we'll make sure that this is clearer um, later, but often what we think of when we think of management of things is project management, right? That's what most of us have as our role or part of our role is managing things, people, right? Not necessarily data in terms of um, data fields and things like that. So really, when we think about project management versus data management, data management is one small piece of the larger project management as a whole. Project management, I like to think of as like the ocean that the data management is one river that flows into it, right? So you think about project management as everything from managing staff, personnel, payroll, um, ordering equipment, making sure that the assessments are there, making sure that the, um, the clients fill, complete their work that they're doing, that is all part of project management and service management. Whereas data management, as you can see, is like long-term storage and backup, right? You need to have a plan for that. You need to have a plan for who's going to be um, putting in the identifiers if you want to de-identify your data. So the plan is very, very detailed, but is then there in case we have, um, in, in Barb's terms, <laughs> uh, someone wins the lottery and doesn't come in the next day. In my more pessimistic view, if I get hit by a bus, what's gonna happen, right? So um, we need to make sure that it is, it is memorialized in some way, all of these processes. And that's what we're gonna be walking through, kind of the nitty gritty questions that you need to answer. Any questions on that so far? Before we get into the plan? Right, next slide. 
So we are going to go ahead and start um, using your materials here. So one thing when we think about data management planning is a list of sources. Where are you getting your information? For those of you whose applications I've seen in human service nonprofit or in other grant applications, I know you get secondary data from the census. I know you get it from things like the health dashboard from ANOVA. You get data from client roles. You get data from client assessments. You get data from surveys. All of those are sources, all right? So what I want you to do now is think about the sources and write down your sources that you have currently. Yes, I mean, one thought that came to mind in the for me was the client database. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a source. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that source is actually collected. And we'll talk about collection versus acquisition. So yeah, you guys are are actually collecting those data. Yeah. So we'll give you a couple of minutes to think about your data sources. Write those down. And then I'm going to ask you these really important questions. Which is why we collect it. You can talk to one another too. She beat me and distracted me. I can hear the question. She knows it. I do hear it either. What did you want to ask? We're just thinking about our secondary data right now. We're yeah, you can talk. Yeah. Oh, that was what it was. Uh, but you can talk to one of you. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. This is your data sources. Where are you getting it from? Okay. 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 It could be any number of things. Yeah, we still have that. Oh, Yes, so the and then it's Yeah, I was like, yeah, 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 yeah
All right, so we got two, one. All right, who wants to share out? I love, I love the discussion. Who wants to share out? Yeah. And this might spark other people to think. Well, I forgot about that. Right. Yeah. I mean, we do look at national, state, local data, like where we can find it. Mm -hmm. The problem we have is best practices because we're unique. Like there are just aren't. But we're just kind of trying to wrap our head around that. So, uh, but also, you know, client data, like employment records, education, that all that, um, and income on these two. And then we also. We'll get, you know, articles, newspaper articles, you know, magazines, mm -hmm. anything that will give us That's why I'm just made a, a comment based on something that Kim would have about. It's like, okay, so I'm wearing the hat of the, the um, person trying to raise the money, but then I've got other people who are helping the clients or managing the volunteers. Mm -hmm. Anyway, <laughs> but I mean, doing various other sundry things. So there's data collected all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then for me at the Salvation Army, we naturally have to report the data. And um, it seems very complicated and time, not complicated per se, but time consuming. And, you know, at the end of the day, necessary. I mean, so. Uh, it's not just a one-stop shop kind of, I mean, your data collection can be beneficial to a variety of different uh, people. Yep, exactly, exactly. That's a really good point. And it comes from everywhere, right? Um, I think we can Oh yeah, most of that, we are yeah. we use Apricot, so our staff, um, we do a little residence directly, administer their data in. So we also get information from like volunteers, Quality of data from the residents themselves, mm -hmm. partners that we work with, other departments within our organization, accounting, mm -hmm. tons of data, right? We're rolling it, um, and that's part of the issue. Is we have all this data, and what what in my previous work we did with the regional education laboratories called it the drip syndrome. Right. Data rich information poor. We have all these data. They're everywhere. But we're not pulling it down and taking a step back to say, okay, do we need all this? Do Bonnie, you need all of that information for what purpose? Right? You just said it's time consuming. It's a lot of stuff. Why do you collect each one? To be able to take a step back and think about that is. Number one, it is time consuming, but it will help you in the long run. And Carol, I liked your, your point about revisiting these objectives and revisiting the need for why you collect it. 
because you can be very critical of your own data and that's perfectly fine. That's what you need to be doing, right? Lawyers. Yeah. yeah, you know, the other thing I, I just thought of in particular is to that point is the objective. Okay, pre-COVID, it was this. Post-COVID, it's this. And we thought we were doing so much to help this particular person with that set of circumstances. Now it's this person with that set of, you know. Yep. It is, yeah. It's just not stagnant. Right, right. I agree with the national organization, which is, then you have all these local organizations that might have such a different need for what data they collect and that you're supposed to provide them with data that you don't, it doesn't, it's not really relevant. Yeah. And that's what we find with like big employers, you know, that have like targets and not, not mm -hmm. to single them out, but you know, what the target store in Sterling needs might be different from what it needs in Milwaukee or something, you know, yeah, but get the same. Right. Right. And so what do you do with that? Right. That's, that's what we would like to introduce as that part of the conversation. What do you do with that? Right. If there's a plan in place to say, okay, this, Milwaukee information from whatever reason can be delegated to this person now because here's the plan for it, right? And be able to shuffle, shuffle things off and around as long as there's a plan that can be followed. And that's the purpose of this, right? It's something that allows for um, critical inception of your own data and why you're using it. So that, that target example is a perfect one of why do you collect it? Well, it's required but we don't use it. So we can put a procedure together and move it over there, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if chairs me, but I'm okay. coming. So wait, it's okay. okay. I think for a lot of us, you know, it should, should be I pretty easy to be collecting the data that's um, primary source relevant to our organization, what we do, what we know, what we think our purpose is. Yeah. When we're applying for grants at the government level, some of our programs are slenders. Um, some of it's like, you go so deep with you know a small amount of people because it's actually really wide with them it's multiple people you think you're serving them etc that's not as like sexy in the numbers for let's say applying to like government or something when you're comparing everyone to each other they're going oh if we give them this grant they reach so many more people or if they do this they so i'm just coming with the questions you're all nodding like so they're one to something but like there's the level of impact yeah okay. and how to maybe like the data that would match these funders' interests, which may or may not have as much impact in our minds to what we're doing work for So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's yeah, let's put. I wish I had a, I wish I had a dashboard here because that will come up later. Um, but we can go ahead and, and talk about it now. You know, I'm I'm just going to have to talk out there. Um, oh, sorry. Yes. Going off of that, so I work for the Latin Education Foundation and I run Backpack Coalition. Okay. So in terms of like impact of the program, there are people who say, well, the more students you serve, then the greater the impact. And it's like, okay, but no, the goal is to like, I should not have a job. Like, I should have food. Yeah. So trying to like, I guess, um, make those sort of match up a little bit. Um, it's really just and we have that problem here, I will say. Um, you know, I am a county employee, but we have that same problem where decisions are made based on the largest number of people that can be impacted. But that's not just at the county. When I worked in Minnesota, we were responsible for our child care development fund. Um, and 
the decisions made there. That same argument comes up at the state level. It comes up at the federal level. But the way you tell your story is what matters. And the data that you collect is what matters. Because if you say, we're an inch wide, but we're a mile deep. Well, what's in that mile? What makes this important versus an inch deep and a mile wide? What's the difference in impact? And so the data that you collect and the data that you can acquire helps to tell that story. And so we are going to recommend that you find um, statistical consultants to help with some of this. And again, you know, we've talked about cost of those and, and um, other issues that could arise, but part of it is just helping you get started, whether that be through interns, um, those maybe master's level students who need a master's thesis, and you've got data. I mean, there are a lot of free ways to do it. Maybe your board members have an interest in data that they could help support. There are a number of ways to just get small wins out of some of this, but um, it really does take some statistical expertise and knowledge to be able to put the variables together in a way that helps tell that story. So, you know, it really takes an examination of all your metrics of all your variables, the combinations, building constructs. It's not to say that it's not possible, um, but you're already busy, right? So how can you find people to help with that? We'll talk a little bit, but we, we do encourage and a good database. And a good database, yes. And that's another point is longitudinal data, right? You know, we just said, I have an affinity, I'm a data pack rat. I never throw any data away. Um, but if you have 10 years worth of data of six or eight um, in your class or in your cohort, you know, you look at that, that's 600 or 60, and then, you know, 55, and then there's, you can consolidate those. And the numbers help you to build that case. So it depends on how far back you go, but there are statistically ways that we can put the data together to make it look bigger, right? That's what they're doing, but the impact is still the same. It's just over what period of time. So there are ways to do that. Just a, a quick question, because, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm about Walter and Luke Ryan, Walter Foundation, and, you know, we're really small. We, we, we're doing a lot, but sometimes I wonder, you know, are we collecting enough data? Trying to be forward thinking to think, okay, you know, for my you know, next county grant, I'm going to need to provide X data and I'm not getting it now. So it's like, you know, one more data component that I should be collecting and should be gathering. But, um, you know, I'm just not sure, you know, the risk benefit analysis of, you know, taking on another survey question, another survey, another piece of data, um, if that's really self-serving or if I'm just sort of sabotaging what I'm doing right now, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, that makes sense. And that's the point of looking at your data critically, right? So I've seen surveys that are seven pages long, and that's not necessary. If you look at every question, Will you use every question in there for some purpose? Probably not. If you don't, 
leave it in one more year and see if you can use it next year and get rid of it. And then you just don't have it anymore. And that's fine. Again, I think that gets back to the data rich. You have a lot of data, but you may not be using it all. So if you need to take a step back, what I've always suggested is a data inventory. So you have all of your measures and you put them in a binder and you go one by one. Do we need this? Do we need this? How is this helping our clients? How is this helping us get money? Right? If it's not doing any of those things or anything that's important to your mission, why, why are you collecting it? There's no point. Like, like for you, for example, that it's not telling your story. Because if you line up five other organizations or main teams with I prevention, maybe four of them might pull the same statistic, but not accounting for different yep. health or whatever. Yep. Well, they did that one, but you told your story with the data that supported your story, yep. but that still rides above in your all mind. Yep. That is it's deep in there. Yep. Both Absolutely, both because both that's a compelling story. And sets them apart. Yep, that's a compelling story to it that way. So the storytelling is really getting in in the weeds of the data and the understanding it. Yes, but not data mining, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, what's going to stand apart for your services? And what data do you have to back up your arguments? So when um, when I was working on assessments, um, you know, what we would always have is claim and evidence. What are you claiming to do? What evidence of it do you have? Right? So if we claim that we are helping students, um, you know, increase literacy outcomes for the five, what evidence do you have to support that? Assessments, right? Um, students, achievement scores, uh, curriculum based like grades. So that's the evidence beyond that. Demographics would be all we would need. So. Again, I think this really does lend itself to the questions that were already. Up on the screen, you're using tools. How often do you use them? And when do you not use them? You can get rid of it, right? It's just a matter of being able to map it, and we'll talk about mapping those. We also, in the data management plan, want to make sure that you identify the type of data based on the data source, right? So if you have client interviews, it's going to be qualitative data. What can you do with qualitative data, right? Is there a problem that you're trying to solve? that fits better with quantitative or qualitative data or a mixed set of data. And what you want to do is make sure that you're telling your story with the best combination. What I will say is one thing that we want to steer away from is kind of the political arguments with, and this, this happens all the time on Capitol Hill, um, where some one person is ushered in to tell their story and that's the story that resonates with the legislator, right? But is that representative of all the other stories? Or is it this one person, right? One person's experience. And so what you want to do in the case of using both quantitative and qualitative data is look at themes. Okay, so every one of my exit interviews, let's say for Crossroads Jobs, 
you may have an exit interview once the person gets um, employment, gainful employment. So are you asking the same thing over and over again? And are you getting similar responses? So that's a thematic analysis where you're looking for similarities. And then you can choose quotes that are indicative of those similarities, but not just, oh, that sounds like a really good one. We'll pull that out, right? So there are ways that you have to figure out what's going to tell your story the best. And for me, it's always statistic, follow up with a theme. Statistic, follow up with a theme, right? So we know that Loudoun County has the highest household income, household median income in the nation. We also know that roughly 18%, I'm just making this up because I don't have the census in my head, but um, roughly 18% of kids under age 18 go to bed hungry, right? So those are two statistics. And then you have qualitative data that you can add if you're working for like or backpack buddies, right? You have qualitative and statistical data that you can say, and here's who we serve, and here's what they think about it. Okay, but that's that theme that you're looking at. What about um, the, let me, let me pause there. We talked about sources, and we talked a little bit about um, this quantitative and qualitative. I want you to take a look at your sources and I want you to start looking at um, and jotting down the list of data that you collect from those sources. Is it surveys? Is it interviews? Is it both? Is it um, assessments? What type and um, method are you using? What are you collecting? And how are you collecting? So kind of that last bullet, what is the list that you're collecting? Yourselves again, it's okay. Oh, and I said I think it's because I ran because I ran back. Oh, <laughs> Oh, thank you. What do you see? Yeah. 
that again is
and I will pick on people if nobody talks, but you guys are talking, so. Hey, will you a teacher in another lobby? <laughs> I actually was not, but I was a researcher in early childhood, uh, birth through eight. So I spent a lot of time in classrooms. <laughs> yeah, a lot of time. So you can tell, huh? I used to pride myself on do um, classroom observations with certain assessments that I could listen to each kid's name. And by the end, when they came back to circle time, I could tell them in order what their names were. Um, really? Wow. Because I spent that much time in class. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yes. So who wants to go? Who wants to tell us the list of data that they're collecting? Or a short list, just a short list. With an assessment, we don't do assessments, we do tools at the end of the program and we have conversations with the participants. So I guess I don't know how well that thing is collected, I guess, but it's okay. It's part of this closing and bringing bringing proposals. And what kind of conversations are they? Are they related to the survey or are they separate from the survey? No, they might be they have volunteers groups so they might they for teams that come up it's support groups okay and all in my case um okay and um yeah i think that would be an example um yeah mm -hmm. yeah so i mean surveys and conversations if there's a way that you can if, if standardizing the conversations is not possible standardizing the analysis maybe Right, where you can look at a thematic analysis across conversations and say, we're looking to see generally what is the theme. Are we looking at positive or negative comments? Are we looking at key keywords or key phrases that associate with change? Things like that. So even if it's not a standardized collection, you can standardize your analysis and your data management. So something to think about. Others? Um, brought up the fact that, you know, like, when we received the ARPA funding for the eviction prevention, mm -hmm. um, part of what we were trying to look for was in our case management, if we gave someone this money to prevent their eviction, are they still housed at one month, at two months, at three months? And, um, but nonetheless, <laughs> um, uh, basically determining if. If what we were saying, keeping someone's stably housed by helping them through this, um, yep. they will continue to be. We also did try to isolate different skills that they might need mm -hmm. to um, prevent something from happening. Yeah. So that was useful and I would suppose qualitative uh, information. Mm -hmm. So it was more like a conversation, not like a and it's not like that committee was okay. okay. And it's a case management. I'm wondering if that's not. That is a ton of rich data, case management notes, and that is rich, rich data that you can use. Um, again, it might not be uniformly collected, so you want to make sure you have a uniformly um, set of analysis or analytic techniques behind it. And it takes a lot of time. It, oh yeah, qualitative takes so much more time than quantitative does. Absolutely. To a certain degree, you always have to learn it. Or, I mean, staff, but you know. Yeah. 
it's, it's hard. It's difficult because, you know, you're also going to burn people out if you continue to collect all this data. And then if you're not reporting it out or at least telling your staff that you're doing well and here's the data that backs that up, you're going to have morale issues too internally, right? Why are we working so hard? We don't know the overall picture that they're contributing to, right? I've seen that before as well. So it can be used for internal and external communication. And that's why, you know, when we talk about data management plans, they are this internal set of procedures so that everyone knows how they contribute. And then if somebody wins the lottery, you can pass it off to somebody else, right? And you just wait. Pipes <laughs> around bar. We're hoping she wins the lottery. Um, so, so yeah, it's going to be different sets and how you put them together. So anyone else? First call. Not yet. All right, next slide. Okay. So <laughs> for those of you who manage your data right now, who has access to it? The data management. To your data. Data. Oh, data in general. Any of the, the things that you have on your list. Okay. More. Can I make a quick joke about the BYOC worksheet? Well, very few people send in their data, so I imagine like we don't have access to their data. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna bring that up. You all have mine. <laughs> yes, we do have. You know, we come basic. Do you want a hundred Google Sheets? Because I got you. Okay. Yeah. So, Identified. If there is no way to identify a person, that's one thing. Um, but what happens if someone goes in and accidentally miskeys and hits a gate and it's all gone? Um, that would be my biggest fear. It's like something happening to the data and a chunk of it goes missing. Nobody's fault, but it, it could happen. So I think, especially with identifiable data, there have to be levels of um, it's important to figure out like who needs to see this data, like it, you know, because yeah. like I have, you know, our our data police Salesforce, only two board members have access to that because they don't, they don't, you know, I give them reports on like numbers and you know, questions or something, but they don't, they don't need to be going in there and kind the same with it, you know, exactly, and the same with our donor database, you know. To, you know, different people have access, but yeah, for a purpose. Exactly. And administrative, like to be able to change things, that's very, yeah. one or two people probably. Yeah. 
And do you have that written in a document? We do not. Hence the need for a management plan. So really that's that's part of it is like, okay, what happens? You know, who needs access and why? Um, and really think about it as position specific, not as person specific. What we've seen in policies um, and even just protocols is so-and-so will take care of this data, right? And then so-and-so has, you know, four lottery. other things added to her plate, huh? Or so-and-so won the lottery. Yeah, or so-and-so <laughs> won the lottery, right? Oh, well, now who does it go to? Versus grants coordinator has access. So whoever the next grants coordinator coming in will be the person that has access. I'm going to get a voice to you. <laughs> 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 22, you get back to Starburst. You get back to Starburst. No, no, that is good. Yeah, and that's that's one, and that's that's one thing that we were talking about in prepping for this is like it's a lot of this is intuitive but it's often not written down and it's not formalized. And that's really what we're trying to hone in with like getting grants and applying for grants. The more that you have written out already that you just do as part of your normal routine, the easier it is to pull and the less time you take when writing your grants. And I will also say that as you expand your grant funding, funders will do site visits, particularly on the state and federal level, and they want to see your policies and procedures. It's terrifying. Um, <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, but they want to see that. Yeah. Um, so it's really important to, to have those in place for that reason as well. Yeah. So I have something <laughs> I'm curious about that. <laughs> so salvation on the whole Southern Convention uses a data, I mean, a donor database called Interchange. But in only people who are trained, advocates, blah, 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 are allowed access. But once you have access, see what happened to the donor in Georgia or what the donor in, wow, you know, whatever part of the South is there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I can't see the entire record because certain, um, um, what, are, what are they called? Major gifts officers <laughs> have uh, denied availability to the whole giving history of them. But what do you think? What is? Yes, that's problematic. Um, yes, you have to do training. That's probably where they alleviate some of the risk because there's a lot of risk associated with people's information being out there for I don't know how many um, who would have access. So I'm sure that they say that they decrease the risk because of the training. But is there is there a written protocol that says when this person separates from employment, then, then I don't know that's that's like say you have a prospect manager for almost every donor, yeah. and that that's the only person who will have any manipulation to the record or ask yeah. a donor for anything. Yeah, so that's a great example of a data management plan specifically for those data. Um, I still, I mean, if it were, if I had my brothers, right, I mean, it would be separated. And segregation makes for more security, right, and less chance for human error or less chance for fraud. And I have to think that that, plan or that rationale has been well thought on. 
Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like if they've got the written policy already, then that's the reason. That's I was, I was like, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we had that at my old um, employer where we had to go through federal clearance to be able to access certain databases. Um, and yeah, once you had your clearance, you had your clearance until you separated from employment and you could access any number of different things. And like, okay, but you had your training. <laughs> and there wasn't a, like an annual, you yeah, annual renewal. Yeah. Anybody else on access? Anyone who doesn't have any written documentation around data? Yeah. Like a, like a plan? Yeah, like for who can access it and why? No. Did you consider it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many people have access to your data now? Um, no, that's fine. Uh -huh. That's fine. I'm going to come over and steal another people. <laughs> it depends on what data. Okay, tell me more. Um, so we had a uh, partnership with Amazon and the local logistics partners for our delivery weekly. So our logistics partner and the two owners of that company have access to our sheet for numbers of bags and boxes each school needs for that week because they do all the routing because we've got two drivers. So they have access to that. They can't change the master sheet for that week, um, but they can change like order of you know mm -hmm. the schools that they're going to yeah. um so they have running you know weekly access to that um that's it well so you just explained your data management plan yeah but that's the only one i mean other than that like access to like regular data is myself and, and is it password protected does it have names in it um it's a or google so you could password protect it, right? Like that's another step of security that yeah. if someone were to walk by your open computer, right, and see the data or be able to log into something, they wouldn't have access to that identifier. Yeah. yeah. And so really it's just something that's maybe a few bullet points. But this is what we do every time. And in previous jobs I've had, literally if you leave your desk, you lock your computer. Yeah, so that is required you know, requirement because everything was secure, but still, <laughs> what's happening here? All right, anybody else? Yeah. Um, we, do not, we do not have a plan. Okay. Uh, but, you know, we are a staff. Mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's, just, it's the three of us. Um, <clears throat> So I don't know, you know, with other small nonprofits, like, is that like, you know, big girl plan or do we need to, do we need to implement something just for? Val is not allowed to have the data on. So what you can think about is in terms of a smaller organization, who has access to your data outside of the organization, right? Do you provide any data to external entities? Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a fair question. So we we give aggregate data to mm -hmm. other, you know, when we're writing for the grant, but it's not, we don't share anything specific. Mm -hmm. 
you know, what I would put into a grant. Yeah. And so then that is something that you can write down to literally have as a part of your data management plan. That data only go out to external sources in these certain circumstances or with permission by programs. And even who get permission. your board members, mm -hmm. who on your board members may or may not have access or what data do you share with them? And that's fair. Again, it's all aggregate data. I mean, there's none of them that are getting into the weeds. That's an interesting question. So board members have, you know, find legal documents to, to be able to have fiscal information yeah. about the foundation. Um, but if we were to contract out or find an intern, they, find, they sign those same legal documents from NDAs, Yep. Et cetera, to, to access the data. Yeah, so that's part of your data management strategy. Your access is they have to be able to sign these NDAs and you adhere to those and you review them on a regular basis. Yeah, so that would be part of that then plan. All right, let's move on from here. So now we talk about standards. Um, this is something that I bring up at every data meeting every time I have a chance. Well, what data standards are we going to use? How will we make sure the data looks the same across every person that collects it, across every spreadsheet that's collected? What does that mean? Right? Um, well, you have two decimal points or one. Will you have um, commas? Will it be currency level? What file formats will you use? All of that matters when you go to analyze your data. Because if it's not in the same format, you may get errors and not know why. You may also get false results or inaccurate results. So it's really important to know the standard that's going to be applied across all of the people that handle the data. And so sometimes it's very easy where if you're exporting something, let's say from Salesforce or from Applecot, that is exported into Excel, right? Is it XLS or is it XLSX files? Even something as simple as that, right? How should it be downloaded? Should it be in CSV? Should it be a tab delimited? What's going to be the easiest way that everyone is uniformly using it? The same thing um, with the cells themselves. So often we just export into Excel and sometimes I'll use statistical packages. But if you just export into Excel, the format may be different for every single cell for every single variable. So you've got to go through and clean that up, right? Um, and that's part of that data cleaning process is making sure that the variables are in the format that you need, that the dollars are in currency if you want them in currency, that the decimals have only one decimal place or two decimal places of its currency. Whatever you need should be documented on how you download and clean those files. Another thing um, with data cleaning is actually analyzing your data before it gets analyzed. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? <laughs> but you want to make sure you're spot checking to see if there are anomalies like keyed entries. Right, so if it's something where the cap of income for your program is 30% AMI, 
and someone accidentally keys in $250,000, right? That could happen. That happens if you don't have specific rules for each cell size or for each cell. Then you have to go back and check the records. But you would catch that in data cleaning. So you would go through and you would just run frequencies and make sure that everything is keyed in the way it's supposed to be keyed in. And if it's not, you have to go back and check a record. And it could be that someone just accidentally hit an extra zero. It happens. There's no, no nefariousness to it. it. Sometimes happens. So having that written down that someone does that before you actually analyze your data can save you in the long run and can save some embarrassment. Because if you had 250,000 and then you gave us an average, that average income is going to look way higher because of this key entry error. So you want to make sure that you're thinking through how to communicate that. And then also with qualitative data, I'm glad you brought up the point of identifiable. That was one of our points. Make sure it's not identifiable. If it is, it has a unique identifier, right? Not necessarily associated with a person's name. If you're going to get access to other people, right? If it's internal only and you have access rights and access limits, that's fine. Another thing to think about in terms of analysis and the type of data is how the data are collected. So again, you're looking at your sources and qualitative data can come in many different forms, right? Many different sources. Carol mentioned um, newspaper articles about kind of the contextual pieces. There are also interviews, conversations. All of these data are at your fingertips, but how you analyze them really matters. And you can do something with a content analysis and look for keywords versus a thematic. So if you're scrolling through multiple different types of qualitative data, you need a plan for what you're looking for. Because otherwise you'll get, oh, that sounds interesting. I do that a lot. Oh my gosh, that sounds interesting, but that's not what I'm looking for. Right? Yeah. This is a super teeny tiny question off yeah. the it's like a cousin to what you're talking about. Okay. So but you just um, you were saying uh sexist. Okay. Is it a second cousin or a first cousin? <laughs> okay, okay. I had the question before it just happened. When uh at least for you all we're citing data, all of us have ever been in science papers or English papers, they're citation world for a grant mm -hmm. do you want an actual citation or is it just not to say like the sentence is bad or this article is bad or do you want the like you know print the article and the date but all this stuff what is the citing oh that's a good grant? question um some people are granting the word count <laughs> <laughs> so i never know which one to do i'm like trust but i'm telling you the truth so i will say that the word counts are not limits for the human service nonprofit. They're just suggestions. So, yeah, and so, so we, if it is something that is a journal article, I want the citation, right? If it's anecdotal information from your data, I want to know it came from your data, right? So if there's a direct quote from a client, you can put source data, colon, um, client records, something like that, where at least we know, again, you've claimed something, here's the evidence. You're claiming evidence. That's what we need. 
and I will say as a reviewer and feedback from our reviewers, oftentimes, and it's not, uh, we don't trust you about the data, but they'll often click into, or they'll go to the site just to get more information um, and get a better sense of what you're talking about. Um, so it's easy when it's the full citation, it's easy to do a cut and paste or whatever it may be, but it um, oftentimes that happens. So I doubt by full, but it's based limited in my team. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. Any other questions? And there's no hyperlink, right? We can't put a hyperlink. Um, in the, the way it's currently set up, you can't. You can't. Thank you. I just swallowed too big of a tootsie roll. Okay. Any other questions about quantitative and qualitative data and the standards that need to be applied? Again, it's intuitive most of the time, but to have it written down allows you to then not have to continue to rewrite and rewrite for every single proposal. You can pull it once. And you've got it. So when you think about your plan, really think about the meaningfulness of it because the more detailed you are, the more you can pull depending on the specific funders requirement. Okay. Slide? So I'm sorry, but you, you just said you need a second. You said, you know, once you have it, you can pull it once and you have it. But isn't that, isn't our data constantly growing and changing? Your data management plan. Your plan. Oh, your plan. Yes. Not the data itself. Correct. Yeah. So, no, the actual management plan should be revisited on a regular basis, but, you know, it's almost like boilerplate language, right? You can just pull what you need based on the question. That's being asked. All right, and Tracy is passing out some of the data retention policies from the Library of Virginia. This is what we use um, for our records retention. And what we, you know, even as data pack rats, we have to clean out our data every now and again. And this is the process that we're using from now on um, when it comes to keeping data over time. What do you guys typically do? How far back does your data go? And you know, the feds like to go back a long way. So, yeah. Probably got, what, 10 years worth? Probably been using some of it. Some yeah. of it. Yeah. I mean, we weren't using the, the database now. So, some of that's sparse, you know, in the database. But, um, yeah, we have a <laughs> Just in case someone comes back again. Yeah. You know, we like to, you know, because of duplication and, you know, we like to make sure we have that whole history. Right. Yeah. Because physical and or electronic. You can destroy electronic data too. Under those. That negatively impact 
an organization like ours who's like looking to become evidence led and need to have historical documents, then you can keep them. Okay. Yeah, there's no, this is just guidance. So this is not a law that says you have to, you know, destroy files after three years. Um, typically, I mean, I keep data about 10 years, um, but it really, this guidance is the least amount of time that you can keep it and then destroy it, right? You can keep it in the perpetuity. Sorry, go ahead. The other thing to keep in mind is, particularly on the federal level, um, different federal agencies will have their own guidance um, around record retention. Um, it could be five years, it could be seven years, it could be 10 years. Um, it does vary across federal agencies. So also keep that in mind as you're looking for particular right mm -hmm. before yeah. you destroy. Yeah. Um, so also keep that in mind and understand their guidance around record retention. So I'm here, it says criminal history background check records. It says zero years after event. So it's okay to do a criminal background check and immediately shred it. As long as you have, hold on, let me read it because I don't want to, I don't want to misquote. What page? Uh, three out of eight. When it's made for the purpose of making a hiring decision. Yes. So yes. But they're not supposed to be in the personnel file. Your policy is your um, organization. The state of Virginia says that you can destroy them after the hiring process is over. Okay. Do I learn something? <laughs> That's what the materials are good for, right? <laughs> So who else has like thoughts of data reuse? How many of you share data at all with others? Other organizations, with students, with how do you reuse your data? Yeah. Oh, through grant applications. Uh-huh. Tell me more. Well, again, we don't do the grant, but yeah, so we got uh well we have a data person who will share anytime we're uh, our grant folks are saying, hey, we want to apply for this grant, they'll go to I'll put it in myself, but often just go straight to our person who pulls all of our data. And it says specifically, we're applying for this grant, so we want this type of information from either these properties or this stuff, this demographic or these programs. Um, or if they want to know about, like, we're trying to find the future programs, and then they might work with our team to say, okay, you know, what are you looking for? And then we have the supporting documentation for that. So I like actually want to, and it's internal. Internal uh, program to work with your plan for next year, right? So, yeah, yeah, partners, yeah, yeah. No, we'll share with partners and vice versa. We'll get data from them. We probably have something. Yeah, we have MOUs. So each partner will have an MOU, and so they'll say what, what data they're going to collect and share with us, and we'll say what data we're going to collect and share with them. Good, good, good. Yeah, because that's really important when you want to make sure that you're protecting your data from misuse. And those who reuse it, you 
you can know their intentions, but then you also don't have their level of access in their organization either, right? So they're operating in their own sphere. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, they're operating in their own sphere. They might want to have a good data management. That is correct. <laughs> Fairly, fairly. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? No, we learned. No, we don't enforce that. Like we, have, you know, records to other medical professionals. Sometimes we do the release of information, and we may have dates on it for our family that says we only, you know, we have to do again until X date has gone by. Yeah. But it's released, and it would say to the responding professional that there's a date on it. We know we don't like follow up on any of that or enforce it. Yeah. Well, and but could you? I mean, if we need to check up on it, I suppose we could. Yeah. And that's really the purpose, right? I mean, if if there's an issue with the reviews, right, or they're using it for something different than its intent and you find out about it, right? Right. That's right. That's when you would enforce. Yeah. So that's why it's really important to have those rights written down. Yeah. Yeah. And whether it be MOUs or some sort of disclosure, it's really important. Making us all suspicious this room does anything nefarious, I promise you that. All right, next slide. Okay, so now we're getting into the nitty gritty of analysis. I will not bore you with all of the analysis um, and data analysis planning, but when you think about your data management plan, you should have a plan for analysis. And so we're gonna spend the last 15, 20 minutes here talking about um, your analysis of how to map your variables that you have onto your questions, which should then link to your logic model. It all comes back to your logic model. All right. So really, when you think about um, your data analysis section, you have to have not only the number of cases overall. Everybody has that, right? You have your client list. You look at the rows. That's the number. Um, but then you also need to make sure that you're using inclusion and exclusion criteria. Right, so if you only need clients from the last two years, that's an exclusion criteria or an inclusion criteria. Make sure that you have that written down or whatever analysis you're doing. So it's really an informational purpose. Thanks, Kim. And um, make sure that you have that very clear, right? And part of it is just setting up. Oh, she forget her. <laughs> she forgot her shawl. Um, making sure that you have those parameters up front, that you're saying, this is what our data say. We have 500 clients that we served in the last year, and we're only going to be talking about X number between March and June, you know, quarter two of this year. So that's your exclusion criteria. That's what you're telling us in your analysis. Now that you have this quarter, it's only 150 people that you're gonna be doing analysis on, right? So that is all really important to a funder because if you have multiple numbers in different locations, there's going to be a question and we're going to say your data is messed up, right? The best way to do it is to make sure that those exclusion criteria are clear to say we are only looking at this part of our population or of our client role. Otherwise, we'll come back and say, well, you said 500 here. You say 145 here. What's the difference? Why does that matter? Okay. Also, 
conducting missing value analysis is really important, not only for data analysis purposes, but also for improvement purposes in your own tools and measures. So for instance, have all of your clients or the vast majority of your clients not answered a question? And it's the same question for every client. Probably bad question. You know, it's not your clients, it's your question. So then you can revise your questions. You can also look at patterns of missingness when it comes to the types of questions you answer or ask, right? So for instance, maybe it's um, income for some groups of folks. Maybe it is religious affiliation or others who may be in need of food, right? So looking at the patterns of missingness helps you to better tell us what your data analysis is, all right? So we know that this number X was missing. And so we deleted that case because we can't use it in the analysis. And that's perfectly fine. It's the point that you have the plan in place. Also, what meaningful comparisons do you want to make? And how do you measure change? All of that needs to go into it. And again, I cannot emphasize enough, a plan is necessary. Because what we don't want to do is have data miners going out um, and basically, you know, looking at your data and saying, oh, let's just run this and let's just see what this is. Oh, that's an interesting finding. Let's put that in the grant proposal. You need to make sure that it's connected to your outcomes and you need to make sure that it's connected to the questions that you're asked. Okay. Your logic model is your guide. Your logic model should tell you, here's what we put into the process. Here's our actual service delivery. Here's how we lay it out. And down to the logistics, you can lay it out. Here are your outputs, the counts of your services, the counts of clients, and then your outcomes. You are doing analysis on your outcomes, right? So we also need to make sure that when you look at your outcomes in your logic model, that we're not conflating them with something else, all right? So if you're looking at change in behavior, satisfaction doesn't measure change in behavior, okay? So by saying satisfaction is an outcome, that's, that's suspicious because someone can be super excited about a training and not do anything with it, right? They are not actually changing their behavior. They're not increasing their knowledge. So be really, really careful of that. Next slide. So what we're going to do now is if you brought your own logic model, um, use it. If you didn't bring your own logic model, you can use the blank sheet here and just jot down some of your inputs, activities, outputs, and outputs. Because what we're going to do next is on page two of the data management plan. We're going to start mapping your barrier This is one I wish I had a white. <laughs> so Tracy just um, out the pitfalls of the logic model. So we're not going to go into detail on this today, but I found it on LinkedIn um, and it's really, really helpful because a lot of times we think of logic models as the ideal. Logic models are not meant to be pretty 
and say exactly what we wish would happen. We are mapping out what will happen. Okay, so we want to look at the reality of what realistically can you say your services in right? So it might it, quality of life is only good if you're talking about quality of life in your services. Wait a second, can you repeat that again? Because I was I had my head wrapped around another answer. <laughs> sure. So um, what you really want to look for is the reality of your services. And again, what is the question? Like, have you asked a question like an if I do this, then? Yeah. I said, yes. Okay. Yes. So you don't know the answer. Well, you have a hypothesis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, but, but, it, but it doesn't need to be ideal is what I'm saying. So often what we do is, um, okay, we send, I'm just going to take on backpack buddies because it's an easy one, right? Where you have food that you are going to disperse to populations who may not have the means to feed their children over the weekend, okay? But that may not have to do with how somebody's going to live their quality of life, right? It has to do with making sure that kids are not hungry. So it's the one, it's the literal direct impact of the service that we're looking for, not what's going to happen a year down the road or what's the ideal situation about happiness or things that are harder to measure. What you want to see is what is directly the next step as a result of your services. And then as a result of your services and hitting that outcome, what's the next step? So it's very, very baby steps. We're not looking at lofty goals when we look at our logic models, okay? So that's something that I just, I want to make sure that we reiterate that logic models are supposed to be reality. And if reality means that, you know, 50% of your clients are not going to fill out something or 50% of your clients um, are not going to find something useful, why is it in there? You don't need it, right? You want to make sure that it is a direct result of the services that you're providing, okay? And then the step after that is a direct result of that step. So it's literally baby steps, okay? Next slide. So what I want to do now is start putting some of the cobwebs together, some of the spider webs together. You have your logic model that helps to explain outcomes. You should be analyzing your data based on the outcomes as the dependent variable. Does everybody know what the dependent variable is? It's the variable that changes, okay? So if you apply a service to this variable, your service is the independent variable, right? It's the constant. It's the constant. Your dependent variable is what's going to change. That's your outcome. That's what you're anticipating changing. Okay. So all of your data management and your analysis plan should come up against that outcome. It should all be in service to that outcome. All right. So demographic data you can use to look at changes in that outcome or comparisons between groups. Was it... Um, a better outcome for kids in Sterling versus kids in Bristol? Was it a better outcome for males versus females? Was it a better outcome for um, children under 30% AMI or above 30% AMI? So all of those comparisons are being made against your outcome. Okay. 
Next slide. We go back to slide yep. 30. I have a question. Yep. I was sitting here reading the entire logic model. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you mentioned what does it mean you are not a miner? <laughs> <laughs> don't go mining your data. So basically what that means is you need to have a plan when you go in and you're looking for the answer to that plan. Okay. You're not going in and saying, okay, well, let's just put um let's just put the number of sessions in and the number of kids above age 14 who decided that they, you know, hated their parents today. And we'll see what comes out, right? That's not part of your plan. Why are you analyzing it? Because it's it might be interesting, and I found a lot of interesting data that way. <laughs> but that's for another time, right? That's not when you're purposefully putting a grant proposal together. You want to make sure that everything is aligning and everything is connected. Um, yeah. But yeah, basically, it's just taking nuggets out of the out of the data that you didn't plan for. All right, next slide. Okay, so. On page two, I want you to think about your logic model. If you have it in front of you, you need a logic model. And I want you to question. Using your outcome as your dependent variable. All right. I want you to write a question that would help support grant funding. So for instance, are um, are the majority of students utilizing backpack buddies reporting less hunger on Monday? Good question. And it's a valid because it's reporting. It's not thinking. Don't use the words think or feel. Because we don't know what people are thinking. We only know what they're reporting. And once you have that question, take a look back at the variable list you created in your management plan. What variables do you have on that list that help you answer that question? Yeah. So, I know before you said, don't wait satisfaction with change of behavior. Yep. But what about the question, are the majority of clients reporting satisfaction with the services? Is that your outcome that your services are satisfactory? Oh, it's better than not being satisfactory. <laughs> but wouldn't that be an output? Probably. Yeah. So if they're satisfied, they're more likely to come back. Yeah. Right. But if if your outcome is changing the behavior, right? Maybe it's our clients who report higher levels of satisfaction seeing an increase in the intensity of their um, their services. Okay. Right. So satisfaction is not the outcome.
still see some tens moving. I'll give you about another 40 seconds. Folks, finish up writing. See, pins are starting to come down. The next point, you see this little map at the bottom. This is called a variable map or a concept map. It's right here. They can take many different shapes or forms. Some of them have circles. Some of them have hierarchies like this one. But essentially, what you're doing now is mapping the variables that you had written down here to your question. Do all of them match? your question that you had written down. They feed into it in some way. Do they help answer it in some way? If the answer is no, you don't need it. Not for this question anyway. So really what we're doing is giving you direct matches of the variables that you have that you know of and the questions that you are trying to answer. Then when you take it one step further, what we have here is called measures. These are your surveys. These are your conversations. Where's your source coming from that has this variable listed? Okay, what's your source data for that variable? What surveys in it? What assessment is it in? What conversation is it in? And this will help you organize your data and critically look at it to say, okay, gosh, I have eight questions on this survey that I haven't used anywhere on my logic model. Why are we collecting it? Or the opposite could be true, that you're missing some variables and you need to include more questions because you've mapped it out and you see gaps. Anybody want to take a stab on last? I, of course, chose the two o'clock time frame to do like the most complicated presentation. I'll do it. Me, I'm my turn easy and very short. Okay. So I'm because my nonprofit just had a meeting doing something to collect about Okay. It's a very small military foreign therapy program. Works with veterans and at-risk kids and young adults, okay. and so my friend was our clients experiencing fewer absences at school or work than prior to involvement in the program. It's oh, a good question, yeah. but then variables currently answer the question. That's where we go. That's why I'm here. Yep. Um, yep. The journey to build this. Yeah. So it would be possibly school records. Would be quantitative. Yep. Surveys yep. along those lines. Um, for measures, uh, variables, good advice that would be, uh, you know, you want a metric for mm -hmm. success or fail. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It's yes or no. Yep. And so you've already identified an yeah. area that you can build. Yeah. Yep, that's it. That's it. That's, that's what right. we're looking for. We do have one more slide, I think, and then the evaluation. So this is going to be in the PowerPoint when it comes to you, but just a quick, um, I hate the term rule of thumb, so I'm not going to say it, but that's what I'm saying. Um, so, so when we think about spending all of our energy, we spent two hours on this today. 
you'll probably spend more time developing the plan than you will ever have need in a grant proposal. So what we always have tended to do as a rule in grant proposals is think about where you need to spend your energy, where you need to spend your pages, creating the argument and telling your story for why you need the funds over somebody else who's just as deserving. And so when you think about this, almost every grant proposal has a percentage of the total. That is the allocation for that section. So I just have up here some random numbers, but let's say there's a 12 page limit for a narrative. And they say 15% of the total score will be the need statement. So you should that should roughly translate to two pages. They are giving you a guide when they give you those percentages of where you should spend the most time. Okay. And create the best argument. So when you have the evidence base and intervention, you want to get as much detail as possible because that's the highest percentage. You want to score as high as you can on the ones that have the highest percentage. So that may take more pages. And that's how we look at it. Like the proportional um, analysis of grant proposals. So what you'd always want to do is divide the percentage or times the percentage by the number of pages. And that will give you an approximate. It's not perfect, but it'll give you an approximate number of pages per section. And that just helps with organizing. Okay. So we may have spent all this time, all two hours on one page that you'll pull, right? But the point is you have it and it needs to be institutionalized in your organization because once it's institutionalized, you can just pull and pull from wherever you need. And that's still okay. So I forgot to do introductions at the very beginning <laughs> and um, someone mentioned that they wanted to know everybody in the room. So yeah. I don't know if that's where people are packing up. They could. Yeah. Um, let's see. We'll start with Sharon. Sharon Blackator. I work for Arlington Partnership for Affordable Housing, ABBA. Uh, we have expanded into Loudoun County. We're also in um, Providence, Maryland. Expanding to DC, mostly in Arlington, we're also expanding to Fairfax County this year. So it's affordable housing units. Uh, we have a property in Sterling here in Loudoun that's not senior property, and there's next to Fairfax will also be senior. Um, now I'm an associate director of resident services. Alongside Henry here. Um, yep, yeah, and so we are staff the ones who, who work on site. So many of you have a digital partnership opportunities. We'd love to speak with you after this um, on, how, on how best to serve either our residents here in Sterling, their seniors or vets, or um, really anyone else that you think you might be able to help us serve. Nice plug, Sharon. Good job. <laughs> Everything Sharon said, my name is Henry Steers. <laughs> <laughs> also Associate Director of Resident Services. I guess I'll go over on Shola, and I'm the Business Operations Manager at Navi Northern Virginia. So we offer um, mental health support groups, educational presentations, classes. So some things are very short term. They're one and a half presentation. There's eight long week classes. There's uh, support groups that go on all year. We also help people learn how to advocate for themselves, teach people how to advocate for themselves. And honestly, I'm mostly on the admin side, so I can't speak too well on 
everything we do, um, but I'm trying to get a hand on on better data analysis where we're, we're really strong to be like five point something FTE. So um, we're still growing in that sense. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Brenda Walsh. I am here representing an organization called Bridal House. We've been here in Murphy County about 10 years in the area of providing assisted learning and therapy for like 20 months, someone here she previously worked with me up in some programs in Fairfax. I am a valid volunteer to need, so I am not employed by the organization, but I'm a volunteer and we work forward to put together strategies for fundraising and for volunteer recruitment. I recently left a very long career with Verizon and part of the office of the chief data officer and, and analytic or chief data chief data and analytics officer. So all of this. I'm trying to figure out how to take that and bring it here with the one and a half person staff. <laughs> so, please, any help. And also looking for partnerships. We uh, specifically work with, in most cases, veterans, uh, young adults, teens who've experienced trauma, anxiety, depression, self harm, suicidal ideation, and help them through interaction through courses. We are very close to the news program. Speaks to I start off. Why don't you go? Excuse me. I am the um, executive director of Things to Be. That is a place that provides music therapy and other creative arts therapy for all ages. Um, a part of the population is the neurodiverse population, but we also have music therapists in the hospital working with. Uh, stroke victims, and um, we're in all five of the hospitals for medical music therapy. So, and we also have performances and social groups. And we're based out of Middleburg, but we're expanding to the village of Eastburg, and it should be open in September. My name is Carol Smith, and I'm the excuse me, executive director and founder of Crossroads Jobs. We provide job search, job placement, and post placement support to individuals who are experiencing barriers to employment, which can be a lot of different, lots of different barriers. <clears throat> um, so it's very individualized. Um, Lengthy application where we collect a lot of data and then an interview with one of our job counselors. We have an office in Sterling, one in Leesburg, and we offer the program in English and in Spanish. So, employment agency minus the fees. Well, I'm Fanny Hinneman, and I'm the Director of Development for the Salvation Army of Loudoun. Um, and um, we provide emergency assistance to residents of Loudoun County who are living at or below the poverty level specifically with rent, utility assistance, eviction prevention, emergency food assistance, clothing vouchers, furniture vouchers, diapers. Seasonally, we have our angel tree um, program too. Uh, Thanksgiving meals. <laughs> <laughs> we do uh, have the iconic um, red kettle campaign that goes on seasonally. Um, so always need volunteers for that. And the money we raise helps support our programs. Robin Blot, and I am just 
metric week at the Arctic Lab. And so, wow. <laughs> so I can't do it as a robust uh, description of it. There are six programs, distinct programs there. So from the Aurora School, Jake Placement School, um, the preschool program on there, uh, the equine therapy program as well, five of course, um, also have um, behavioral therapy. Um, very robust um, and allied uh, advocacy center. before, which I was there for 10 years, a fantastic, wonderful, wonderful organization. So uh, I just switched over me first and started with our My son went to the Oak River and he was young. Yeah. And a lot of social groups and other things there. Yeah. Sorry. Tool felt like sharing. All good. My name is Kirsten Chelsea and I work for the Love Education Foundation. Um, we raise a lot of money for special programs that schools want to do, um, including grants, scholarships, uh, innovation, and education. Um, and I am the program coordinator for Backpack Coalition, and we provide weekend meals for students, um, sometimes snacks, and we have 11 institutes that we launched. Um, we started with five last year. That's a huge jump. Yeah. I'm Anna uh, Val Walters. I'm with Ryan Um, We are a youth suicide prevention nonprofit. We don't do therapy, we do strength prevention. So we provide those skills, healthy coping skills to teens. So that they can navigate the inevitable up and down of teenage life and into adulthood. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.